So we find ourselves in the Gospel of John here this morning and on to what is a wonderful encounter uh, between our Lord and another individual in the Gospel of John. And I found as I've studied the Gospel of John, it's such a contrast to one of the last books that I preached through uh, in my church at Park. My church is the Lord's, but where I minister. And uh, that book was the book of Ephesians. And uh, the book of Ephesians is, for the first three chapters, it's, it's full of glorious doctrine, uh, uh, mysteries of God, if you like, election, predestination, all these wonderful mountains uh, that are in there. Uh, before it concludes in the last three chapters of um, practical living and godly living. Um, and yet when you come to the Gospel of John, you, you find that it's, it's narrative, really. It's full of conversations uh, between Christ and uh, different individuals. And already in the Gospel of John, you would have seen Christ uh, conversing with the disciples, uh, conversing with Nicodemus in the last chapter. And of course, it's a turn of the woman at the well now uh, in chapter 4. And this chapter is not only in a famous gospel, it's a famous passage of that gospel. And uh, I'm inclined to think that sometimes when we are well-versed perhaps in a particular passage of scripture, that we can often come with our minds not quite as open and our hearts not quite as open as they should be because we're familiar with the passage. We may have read it a dozen times, may have read it 20 times, 30 times. And perhaps some of you are thinking, oh no, not this passage again but I would encourage you as far as is humanly possible in you to open your hearts and minds to the wonder of this glorious passage of scripture so what are we seeing happening here in this great chapter well what we are seeing is is Christ is on the move and he's crossing through boundaries he's crossing through the boundaries of land and he's crossing through the boundaries of culture and what do I mean by that well Let's look at the, the boundaries of land first. When we look at verse 3 here in this passage, we see that Christ is in Judea. He's in southern Israel. And he's on his way to Galilee, which is in northern Israel. But to get from south to north, he's got to pass through an area that is called Samaria. And that is obviously in the middle of Israel. Now, for a number of us who are listening to this, uh, or, or, or were reading it perhaps, it may mean nothing at all in what I've said, but there is an issue here. And that's because this middle area of Samaria is where the people are called Samaritans. And the truth is, they weren't very much liked by the Jews, and they very much didn't like the Jews. So this feeling was reciprocated. It was mutual. Now, I won't go into the history of all of this entire conflict, um, but I will say this in a little Merthyr saying, there was a bit of beef between them. So if you can remember that point, there was a bit of history and beef between them. Now, as I said, I won't go into all the complexities of that history, but I will give you something brief for context. But essentially what happened was this. There was a time where obviously there was one nation, but this nation divided into two into a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom of Judea. And in time, 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel uh, was defeated by the Assyrians and dispersed into the nation, really, essentially, into captivity, their own type of captivity. 
what happened was this, was that the remaining Israelites, those who were left, the very few, uh, they were intermarried then with the captors, the Assyrians. They essentially watered down this northern kingdom. And so the conquering people intermarried with the remaining Israelites. And in relation to the southern Jew, uh, the southern nation, the Jews, this uh, led to a perceived mongrel race, a hybrid race. And so the Samaritans then, they weren't only a hybrid people in their eyes or the of the Jews, but their very religion became hybrid. The Assyrians sort of that. So for example, when we look at the Samaritans, they believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, but they didn't believe in the Psalms. They didn't believe in the major and minor prophets. All of them were rejected by the Samaritans. And the Samaritans didn't worship at the temple at Jerusalem. They worshipped at a mount called Jerusalem. So clearly the Samaritans went wayward in their pursuit of God. And so you've got this beef then between the, the Jews and the Samaritans. And this is why we read in verse 9 that the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Now that doesn't mean that they didn't purchase things from them because the disciples have gone into a local town and city here to purchase things. But they didn't eat with them. They didn't associate with them. Uh, they didn't share the same plates and utensils. There was a great division between these two people. And that's uh, this history between them both. It wasn't a modern history. In the time of Christ, it had been going on for hundreds of years, even by then. Because when it was the southern kingdoms turned to go into captivity, when the nation of Babylon came and, and captured them and defeated them, some of you may remember that when, in the time of Nehemiah, when he returned to rebuild the, the, the walls of Jerusalem and eventually the temple there, the Samaritans came to offer their support. And the Jews said, we don't want your help. We, we're not going to receive your help. So this has been going on in the context of this passage for hundreds of years. And, uh, I'll try and continue my sermon quite quickly because... I won't keep mentioning the beef here that's going on because some of you might have beef in the oven and you want to go home and have your food. So let's carry on in what really I want to say here. The result is this. The Jews would often skip Samaria. They wouldn't go into Samaria. So they could often go around, if you like, to the right-hand side, go across the River Jordan, up and into Galilee that way. It'd be the equivalent of us, perhaps, going across uh, the Seven Bridge, or the Prince of Wales Bridge, whatever it's called now, up the M4, M5, cutting into North Wales that way, to see Wrexham, of course, and, uh, and to avoid mid-Wales. Or alternatively, in Israel, you could go up the coast on the west, uh, the, the west side of Israel. But Christ here, he's skipping nothing. He's going through Samaria. And that's because he has an appointment to keep. Scripture says that he must go about his father's business. And so Christ goes where very few Jewish people wanted to tread you into Samaria. And so that's a brief historical context. Now I'll take you to a current context here. What's happening in this passage? Well, Jesus has become tired from his journey. It's a fair old journey to travel. And we know it's 12 o'clock in the afternoon in Scripture here because verse 6 says it's about the sixth hour. Now, the day starts at 6 a.m., so the sixth hour would mean 
12 p.m. So it says 12 in the afternoon. And what you've hit here is the hottest part of the day. And so Christ has become tired on his journey. Now this is one of the passages in scripture that clearly show us Christ's humanity. Because we read that he is weary, he's tired, he's exhausted from the journey. His disciples have gone into a, a local town to purchase some gravy and chips or whatever it is, some sandwiches. They're hungry, so they've got to get some food, as all good disciples should, because it was the role of the rabbi's disciples to take care of the needs of their rabbi, to show that he was cared for and to provide his needs. And that's what the disciples are doing here in this passage of Scripture. So we're seeing that Christ wasn't just tired here and weary and exhausted, but he needed food also, as any of us would have on a long journey. And just to reiterate this, what we're seeing here in this passage of scripture at this point is the humanity of Christ. That even though all things were made through him and for him and without him was not anything made that was made, what we're seeing here is Christ's humanity clearly. And yet in a moment, remarkably, we will see aspects of his divinity, characteristics that belong solely to God. It's a remarkable passage of scripture. And so in the heat of the day, as Christ sits at this well, this 2,000-year-old well that Jacob dug himself, a certain woman arrives. Now, why would this woman arrive at this well on her own at the hottest part of the day? Historical information tells us that when women came to collect water from local wells, and I use that term loosely local because it could be a significant journey to travel to a well, they came at the coolest point of the day. So they came early morning or they came later in the day when the heat had subsided somewhat. It makes perfect sense because why would you want to travel when it was most exhausting? You'd come when it was least exhausting for you. But this is when this woman arrives when it's hottest, and she's on her own. Now, normally when I drop off my numerous children to the school, there's always a gang of ladies at the front. They're chatting away, they're in a group, and they all seem to be having a, a jolly good time, if I'm being honest. There's, I've never seen anyone ostracized there. They're all inclusive. Uh, there's no one isolated. And they're all gathering together, I assume, when they're chatting to say how much they love their children. I don't know what they're saying really because they've never invited me into their circles. What I can say is it's just a circle of women. There's no men there and they seem very happy. And maybe as a coincidence, I don't know. But the essence of this is, is that's how women gathered at the wells. Hustling and bustling in the cool of the day. Women gathering together. And I find this quite amusing. You see it even in society today that most women that I know, I'm all women you're excluded of course but certainly from Merthyr they can't go to the toilet on their own they have to go in groups I don't understand why it's still a bit of a mystery to me but the same principle applies here with the women going to the wells here you know they went to the well together but this woman comes alone when none of the other women are gathering water and that magnifies this kind of woman's situation because this woman is frowned upon there's stigma here. And if you want to know what that stigma is, I'll get to the point very quickly. That stigma is sexual immorality. 
this woman is on her own. Except that this time when she comes to the well, there's a man there. But not like any man she's ever known before in her life. This man is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we read in this passage, he's thirsty. And that when she comes to draw water, Christ speaks to her and says, give me a drink. Now we can skip across that verse and think nothing of it. But what Christ just did to you in that particular passage of scripture, rabbis didn't do at this time. In verse 7, where Christ asked for a drink, we proceed straight on to verse 8. It gives us some sort of explanation where it says, for the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Why does it say that? Because it was the disciples would have gone to draw water from the well to provide for the rabbi. That's essentially what would have been done. But we've got an issue here. Another issue as well. We've looked at a historical issue. Now there's a social issue here also, not just an historical one. Because rabbis didn't talk to women. And I'm sorry, ladies, as equal as you are, the social dynamic here in Israel was that the rabbis didn't talk to women. In fact, historically, there's a known and well-known prayer by rabbis which says, thank you, Lord, for not making me a woman. How lovely is that? How well would that go down in today's society? It's quite a remarkable prayer, isn't it? You'd be thankful I haven't prayed it. You'd be carrying me out by the year low, wouldn't you? But that's the social dynamic here. And yet Christ is saying to this woman, I'm thirsty. Now the fact he said anything to this woman would have shocked this lady. And her response is exactly that. It's surprise. She knows there's historical enmity there between the Jew and the Samaritan. She knows there's social conflict here also. She's fully aware of all of these dynamics that are going on. And she responds in this way of surprise. Look at what she says. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? Here's the two points. A woman of Samaria. There's the double whammy. I'm a woman of Samaria. So she's fully aware of the social and historical conflicts that are going on at this time. And what I find remarkable about this passage as I've studied it, Christ doesn't even acknowledge that statement. He doesn't even try to answer that statement. He gives no specific answer. And that's something I need to learn from, from Christ in a sense, because every time somebody poses a question to me, I always feel the need to answer it in all my fullness, right down to the very conclusion if you like i know if it was me speaking to the woman i would be saying you know i'm fully aware of the historical context between the jews and the samaritans i know it's been going on for hundreds of years and the social injustice against women at this time is is, is appalling so you know i'm i'm with you i would feel the need to answer fully uh, in, in in these sort of comments but christ goes past this point he goes to a need in her life that in her desperate situation, in the stigma of sin, in the stigma of sexual immorality, the stigma of being a woman, the stigma of being a Samaritan, in all these things, what she really wanted wasn't social justice. She needed Christ. And Christ has come to deal with the great stigma of her sin and the consequences of it. Listen to what Christ says next. If you knew the gift of God, 
and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink? You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, for those of you who can see it, there is an aspect of irony, if you like, in this passage. Here's the truth. This woman is thirsty. She recognizes that need physically. But the truth is, she is blind spiritually to what she really needs. And what she really needs is Christ. Christ once said, blessed are those who thirst and hunger for righteousness. For they will be satisfied. Only Christ can provide the righteousness that this woman needs. She doesn't need physical water anywhere near as much as she needs salvation, this living water that Christ is speaking of. And in a sense, as you look at this passage, there's two wells here. One is a physical well where water is drawn from daily. It still exists in Israel today, 4,000 years on, uh, since it was first dug by Jacob. It's a physical well. The other well here is Christ, from which we are to draw from daily. But from which Christ says from really, we only need to drink once in relation to our salvation. He provides the living water that we need. And we will never, ever, ever be thirsty again in relation to the salvation that he provides. One well provides the sustenance and needs for the body. The other provides the sustenance and needs for the soul. One's the remedy for thirst. The other, the remedy for sin. One is for the stomach. One is for the soul providing salvation. And if you can see it, there are two wells in this picture. But there's only one that can satisfy your soul. That is why Christ said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is, the gift of God is a person. That person is the one speaking. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. If you knew who it was, he was saying to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Isaiah chapter 12 verse 3 says, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And what Christ is essentially saying is, if you knew who I was, if you know who I am, you wouldn't be coming here for this water that you need day after day after day after day to quench your thirst. You'd be asking me for the living water that only I can provide. Now, when you look at this woman's response, her response was very similar to Nicodemus in the last chapter. She responds in a very similar way. It's a response of bewilderment. I'm sure some of you will recall when Christ said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Now, Nicodemus didn't respond in a spiritual way. He was dumbfounded in a sense. And he said, how can a man return into the womb of his mother and be rebirthed, be born again, if you like? He's speaking in a physical sense. Well, in a sense, this is how the woman responds here. She can't see the spiritual truth. She says to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. In other words, where's your bucket? You haven't got a bucket to draw from this well. This well is deep. It's 100 feet deep, for example. Where are you going to get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Just a tad. Remarkably so. Infinitely so. And again, Christ doesn't answer the question. Because he's getting to the bottom of her need. He's not interested in winning an argument as, as I am often or as some of us are. He's going for her soul. 
Christ said, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That is overflowing, abounding in salvation. To go back to that previous book I mentioned, Ephesians, we've been lavished in his grace. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. You know, this woman had been thirsty for many things in her life, not just the water of this well. She'd been thirsty for the love of men. I have no doubt that this woman wanted to be loved. And yet she's probably never experienced the love that she's pursued. She's been married five times. Five times she sought that love. And even a sixth that we know of. And I have no doubt that she wants to be accepted as well. She doesn't want the stigma of rejection. If she had her way, she'd never come again to this well. No more facing the frowns. No more the whispering of the men and the women as she passes by or the snide comments. She would never thirst again. She'd never come to this well anymore. She'd be satisfied. And I've met tens of thousands of people in my life from a variety of backgrounds. Some hard, some soft. But I can truly say I've never met someone who doesn't want to truly be loved to some extent. I want to be loved. I want to be loved by my family. I want to be loved by my church. Above all, I want to be loved by God. But you see, before eternal life is offered to you, there is one thing in you and in each of us and in myself that must be confronted. One thing that must be identified from the Lord. That even though the love of God was present perfectly in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as he sat at this well, speaking to this woman, it is evident the Lord does not and will not ignore this woman's sin. And here we see the omniscience of Christ in the Gospel of John once again here. We've already seen his humanity on display here. The fact that he was weary and tired. The fact that the disciples have gone into a local city to buy food. But he's using his omniscience at this point to see deep within the heart and the soul of this woman. And he begins to reveal the reality and the truth of her sin. Go call your husband. What a remarkable statement. And come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Now as I'm reading scripture, I realize I'm just a fly on the well here. And I can't fully comprehend how she said what she said. And I know there's a lot that is said by not what you say, but by how you say it. And so if my wife Carla calls me and says, Mark, come here. I know everything is rosy in the garden. But if she says, Mark, come here. I've either done something wrong or the children have done something wrong. Same statement, but it's how it's said. Now, I don't know how this woman has said what she said to you. But I bet this woman wasn't smiling when she said, I have no husband. And I firmly believe in my heart, 
I don't normally conjecture in this way when I look at the context of Scripture, but I truly believe in my heart that she said it with an element of shame, with the knowledge of sin in her life, with the stigma of what's going on. And she gives a quick response. It's truthful. But in that quick response, she leaves out so much detail. Yes, she didn't have a husband, but she didn't say where she was at. And so cue Christ with his omniscience, how he sees all things and how he knows all things. Because Jesus responds to her in this way and says, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. In other words, you've spoken truthfully. But you've left a lot out. And even though you and I do leave a lot out often when we come to God, Christ knows everything. You cannot come to the Lord and hide your sin. But look how gentle Christ is here. I've had to learn this. In my own life, I have a deep hatred for sin, knowing the effects of it and how abhorrent it is towards God. A desire to see a holy church. And I've preached about against sins so often within the church. But look how gentle Christ is to this particular woman. He doesn't smash her over her head in her sin. And neither does he ignore it. He has to deal with her sin. He has to confront her sin. And he reveals the secrets of her heart and the circumstances which only he can do. Now this is an unsaved woman. And he's dealing with her in her unsaved condition. And I would say this. There is a difference for those who are saved. And how the church must deal with sin in the church from professing believers but we must begin as Christ does here with gentleness with a heart to produce restoration reconciliation and repentance towards God now I, I don't know where many of you are here today I don't know which of you were unsaved which of you were saved I don't know what your sins are at this time or what you're struggling with or were you to continue to return in your sin over and over and over again? And I haven't come to bash you over the head in your sin. All I've come to do is tell you about Christ. And to tell you the truth. That Christ knows your heart. He knows your sin. He knows what you're doing. He knows where you've been going over and over and over and over and over again in your life to sin. And yet, nonetheless... If you are willing to receive this, he loves you. And he says here in this passage, if you ask me, I'll give you living water. I'll abbreviate it, simplify it, put it in layman terms. I'll give you eternal life. If you but ask, if you come in true faith and repentance in me, I'll give you eternal life and salvation. I'll give it to you. But we do not ask. And we do not come. That is our natural condition. Christ said to, of Jerusalem. Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How I would have gathered you underneath my wings. As a mother hen gathers her chicks. But you would not come. Christ said ask anything in my name. We go to the scriptures. It tells us we can ask for wisdom. But do we ask? We can cry for salvation. I thirst Lord. Do we come? Christ's response has a profound effect on this woman. 
because he searched her heart and brought her sin to the top of her life like, like the froth of a pint. And she says, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. You know, no ordinary man knows the things that you know. God has shared these truths with you. And so the Lord is working on her heart here. There's a reality of sin, the recognition of it, which ultimately when dealt with through Christ leads us to do something. It leads us to worship God. This sexually immoral woman, identified in immorality, caught in a stigma of sin, caught in a false religious system, is being dealt with by God in her sin. And Christ is meeting her in her life. And it leads her to consider worship. The true worship of God. She essentially says to Christ, well, let's say what you were saying is true. Let's say I want what you can offer me. Where do I go to worship God? Because my ancestors worshipped on this mountain here at Mount Gerizim. You, you, you were Jews. You worship at the, at the temple there in Jerusalem. So let's say I want what you've got. Where do I go to worship this one true God? Now some people think that Christ Jude is saying, well, you know what? It doesn't really matter where you go to worship. Truth is, what you need to do is you worship God with all of your heart and all of your spirit through the Holy Spirit. And of course, there's huge truth in that statement. But we're looking at the context of the time here as well. And so Christ deals with something first by saying, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. That means we haven't quite reached that point yet where the location doesn't really matter. Why? Because the Old Testament regulations are still in effect. Christ hasn't gone to the cross of Calvary. He hasn't fulfilled the, the law of Moses. The ceremonial and sacrifice, sacrificial ordinances are still in effect at this time. There's been no ushering in of the new covenant of redemption. So, so how much to approach God at this very moment in time as this woman is asking? Well, Christ responds and tells her. He said, you worship what you do not know. In other words, you Samaritans, you're ignorant. You've got it wrong in your approach to God. The right way to approach God right now in this passage of Scripture is this way. It's the Jewish way. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. He's essentially saying the Jews have got it right. And the truth is, we as Gentiles owe so much to the Jews. We have the word of God, divinely inspired, brought to us by God. But who did it come through? It came through the Jews. You look back to the disciples, the apostles, Jewish men. You go back to the Old Testament, prophets, Jews. You look at Christ, a Jewish man. The divine son of God, yes, eternal, begotten, not created, but a Jew. He was a Jew who purchased from within the Jews, from within the Samaritans. And praise God that he purchased within the Gentiles. Otherwise, why are we gathering here today? We've been grafted in, as Scripture says. It's a remarkable truth. We praise God for his grace to us. But I realize I've been preaching quite a long time here this morning. And just to recapture that point on beef. I don't want you to have any beef for me for preaching too long and treating me like a Samaritan before I leave. Let's wrap things up a little bit. Verse 23, 
Christ says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Right. Let's clarify something. Today, in the new covenant made through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we can worship the Lord anywhere. In Swansea, in Merthyr Tidville, the Mount Jerusalem. The place is irrelevant. That curtain has been torn in two from top to bottom. All the ceremonial laws, all the sacrificial ordinances are all fulfilled in Christ. We are part of the new covenant. We don't approach God from a particular place. We approach God through a particular person. We come through Christ. That's how we approach God. Through Jesus Christ, his son. As scripture says, he's our high priest. He's the only one who mediates for us. So it doesn't matter where we come to worship God now. It only matters who we come through. And we come with a heart that truly worships him. With a true desire to worship him. With true sincerity. Not with false lips. Giving false praise. But with a heart that is cold and far from him. We come in the way that God has commanded to worship. And now this woman, she goes from worship finally to the Messiah. I would say this. She's teetering on the edge of salvation here. Salvation is close. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. I want you to look at that, how she's been moved as Christ has spoken to her. She's been thinking he's a prophet. It's taken her to worship, and now it's taken her to the consideration of the Messiah. She's on the very edge of salvation, I believe. God is doing a great work in her. And then comes the hammer blow. Look at what Christ says. He declares something here. He reveals something that has to be the revelation for all men and all women. There has to be a revelation from God of who the divine Son of God is. As Christ said, no man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him there has to be a work of the holy spirit upon a dead man's souls this is how christ concludes essentially this christ this messiah that you speak of i am he please don't skip that verse please don't fleet it that is a mind-blowing statement this woman had gone about her business to collect water. And she met with the Messiah of God. The divine son of God. And she leaves her very purpose behind at the well. What does she leave at the well? I know I haven't read it. Verse 28. She leaves something there. The water jar. Her very purpose for coming. She came for water. But she leaves with the living water only Christ can provide eternal life and then have a look at the effect on her again i know we didn't read verse 28 and 29 read it when you go home the woman runs into town and starts testifying come see a man who told me all that i ever did she runs into a local town where she was once despised and frowned upon for her sexual immorality where she came to draw water on her own to avoid the looks of the women and the men in the locality, the very people who rejected her, and they are the ones that she goes testifying to. 
That is the power of the gospel. That is the power of regeneration. New birth. She goes to the ones who despised her. That's the power of God. I'll close with this, and I will close with this. I've got a habit of saying I'll close with this and then preaching for another five, ten minutes. But I am going to close with this. I was the best friend of a boy I greatly loved. He was a brother to me, essentially. But when I would tell him of Christ in my younger years, he would mock me, laugh at me, and in his insults, he would call me Jesus, or Jesus is off, he would say. Ten years ago, I visited that boy who frowned upon Christ seven days before he died of alcoholism. A, a lovely boy. Funniest boy you could ever wish to meet. And on that bed, through the one that he had mocked, he came to the one who he did mock, the Lord Jesus Christ, and repented of his sin and turned to him and sought forgiveness. I truly believe I will see him in eternity with all of my heart. And I'm just relaying to you, that's the power of the gospel. That God would be so gracious not only to save you, but to send you to those who mock you and may even despise you and certainly mock and despise God. And yet Christ says in this passage of scripture, if you but ask, if you but ask, I'll give you living water. What a glorious saviour we serve. What a glorious saviour we have. That no matter how deep and dark and terrible your sins are here this morning, no matter how despised you may be by others in this world as they look upon you in your sins and the, the things that you've done and you've been frowned upon, that there is one that we can come to to be cleansed of all our sin. And there is one who can quench our thirst and give us living water that well up to eternal life.